Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you Hey guys, um, last week we um, got into a message, well, it's been more than a week, we've been on this theme here for a, for a moment, and um, the Lord has continued to stir it and put it into place where we are continuing in the conversation of, of what is, what does it mean to be in season, and what does the harvest mean that God may be calling us to. So we just called the kids up here and the teachers, and, and you can say, well, what do you mean by harvest? You know, you think about a field, you think about crops growing on the field, but the truth is we have a field all around us, and for some of these teachers, it's right there in the school that they work at. For some of these people that work at the school, right there, every parent that they meet, every student that sits in their classrooms or walks around the school that they work at, every student amongst other students has a a field, a mission field in which they could serve the Lord and do good for the kingdom in that field. So we do hope that everyone's return, I know some of them start on Monday, uh, was great and was successful for those that have started, um, those that work and those that are students and so on. And like I said earlier, even those that are now driving in the traffic that have no part of school but yet have to be part of it, of the consequences of it. But as I shared last week, you're in season. Um, you should go back and hear it if you did not hear it, because it will give you even more of a clarity of today's message, a more of an understanding of where I'm at as I'm sharing today's message. So go back, and, and, and you could go on YouTube. You guys know that. And on YouTube, just write on the search, write Nest Church, and find the message titled, You're in Season. I would love for you to go back and, and get that in your heart and get that word. Hopefully it blesses you. But I also want to continue those thoughts today. I don't want to just drop it on a Sunday and then not revisit it. I want to just continue to stretch that conversation. So if I'm going to stretch it, I'm, I'm not going to start, which I thought I was, where I ended. I'm going to end, hopefully, today's message where I ended again last week. Where I am going to start is in the Old Testament. And if you have a Bible, you could go ahead and and get ready to look for it. For those of you guys that may not know where this book is at, you have a table of contents in the front where it tells you the page number. So that's the best way of doing it. I always see people flipping. I'm like, dude, go to the front. It's okay. You could just The numbers are there. We're going to look at the book of Amos. If you could go and, and turn to the book of Amos, we're going we're gonna to read a few verses there. Not, not a lot, but I am going to give you a little bit of what's happening during this book and why it's written and the purpose for what it's written for. Amos is considered one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We have some of the major ones that are very popular and we know them. And then we have Amos, who's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And a little bit about Amos so you could know who he is and what he did for a living. He wasn't a teacher. He didn't work in a schoolhouse. He, none of that. But I will say he was a shepherd. Uh, better yet said, more than a shepherd, he was more like a sheep breeder. That's really what he was in his farm. He, 
grab sheep and he bred sheep and that's what he did and he would sell it and to other shepherds and so on and so forth. But in scripture, in Amos chapter 1, we see that not only is he a sheep breeder, but Amos is also an individual who grew sycamore trees. And in those sycamore trees, he tended the figs, the fruit of figs that would grow on them. And to take care of these figs was very tedious. It was hard labor. You had to like make a hole in the bottom of them and do a whole process. And you had to do that with every single fig. It took a lot of time to take care of these figs that grew on these sycamore tree. And that's what Amos did for a living. He worked hard in his field, whether it was breeding sheep or growing figs on his sycamore trees in his farm. He had a lot of work to do. And one day as he's working in the farm, like we see with the prophets, he gets a visitation by God. And God tells the prophet Amos, he says, hey, I need you to prophesy. I'm calling you in this time that you're living in to be a prophet to Israel. And I want you to prophesy to Israel this word that I'm going to give you. And he calls him to such a calling, to such a ministry, to speak God's word to God's people. During this time, the people of Israel were under the rule of King Uzziah. After Uzziah, then they were under the rule under King Jeroboam II. All of this was during the time where Amos had to prophesy under Uzziah and under Jeroboam's rule. And Israel, let's go back to Israel that he was going to speak God's word to, they were in a time of great, great prosperity. Israel was doing really good under King Uzziah and doing really good under King Jeroboam II. Very well, they were successful, they were doing great. The problem was the people of Israel were placing their trust in man. They were doing so good that they were placing their trust in man. They were placing their trust in king and the prosperity that came from that leadership. And God saw that and it became a problem. Not only were they prosperous and, and putting all their trust and all their focus on the king, but what was happening was because of such great prosperity... What came with it was a lot of injustice. You see that happens a lot. We see that in governments today. When there's a lot of prosperity, we see a lot of injustice. And what was going on in Israel was that the upper class was, were taken care of, and they were doing well, and they were growing. I mean, we don't know anything about this. But the lower class were taken advantage of. And there was a big divide in Israel. The lower classes were not getting enough. The lower classes were really suffering. But those that were in the upper class were, were doing well. And, and God wanted to put an end to all of this. That everyone was struggling and, and there was only a certain amount of people that were doing well. And, and then that people were treating each other harsh. And that the children of Israel were trusting in these kings. And it was mostly the, the very rich. And, and, he, and God just says, I need to do an end with all of this way of thinking and this way of lifestyle. Just because there's riches in Israel, it doesn't mean that I'm there. And, and he had to do something and he called Amos to go and speak to them. And he wanted fairness. God always wants fairness. Because he is, as scripture teaches us, he is just. Our God is a just God. He is a fair God. And what he wanted was, he wanted justice over his people. So Amos now was going to prophesy. So I can't 
sit here. It's only nine chapters. It's a small book, the book of Amos, so I can't go today into every single word in those nine chapters. But I'll fast forward a little bit. So let's fast forward some some time as Amos goes into Israel, begins to prophesy to Israel and what they're going through. Two years or so after Amos's ministry and his prophecies over Israel, Jeroboam now, the second king that he is prophesying under, he dies. So Uzziah's done and Jeroboam the second dies now. And we see in scripture that immediately Israel begins to decline. The riches and the blessing over Israel, they begin to decline. And, they be, and, and, and not only, not just slowly, but it's actually very quickly in Scripture, we see their decline. And just 30 years later, 30 years, they're taken captive by the Assyrians. The almighty Israel is now taken captive by the Assyrians. And we see that there's a big problem that this is what Amos was prophesying was going to happen. That God was going to deal with his people. God was going to work in them. How many of you have allowed the Lord to work in you? And in those moments that he's worked in you, sometimes it's been very difficult moments that you've had to go through. Anyone? And that's what he does with Israel. I have to work with them. And to work in them and to work the work I want to do through them, I got to put them through this crushing i gotta you know it's like to bring fine wine i gotta tread over the grapes a little bit and that's what he does and israel feels it as god deals with them and speaks his justice over them but eventually what happens is ultimately it's all for his glory and it's all for their good whatever the lord does in our lives if we're in christ if we're in him if we're obedient, if we're faithful, though he's dealing with us, I want you to know it will be for his glory and it will work out for the good. It always does. Because that's who our God is. So to see his promise and to see how it would end for them and what God had in store for them, first, he was going to correct and he was going to pour out his justice. And it's going to take some time. I just told you for 30 years... 30 years later, they were taken captive by the Assyrians. And though they were going to take them through this process of fairness that God was going to work in them, there was always a promise on the other side. There was always God's goodness in the middle of it all. God was always going to work it out. There's a provision from the Lord that he wanted to teach his people. And I believe that for us, a provision from the Lord that he wants us to live in, that he wants us to enjoy, and that he wants us to be obedient in. But many times we could take our eyes off what exactly is God's provision and what does it look like. And that's what he wants to teach his people. In the book of Amos, I kind of gave you a little quick summary so you could understand why I'm going to read three verses from Amos. Because if I read you three verses without telling you the detail of it, you won't really grasp what these words mean. So let's see it. Let's look at what's, what's going to happen. How is the Lord going to work it out? So we're going to read from the last three verses from the book of Amos. If you turn to the end of the book, it's chapter 9, and it's the last three verses. Well, what is God going to say? What is he going to do? And here it is. Listen to these words. I'll start with verse 13. It says this. It says, the time will come 
says the Lord. See the prophecy there? You see the prophetic word there? The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I'll pause there for a moment. I'm going to read 14 and 15. It gets good. But I want you to see something in what the Lord is saying here. There's going to be an abundance. There's going to be good that's going to come out of what I'm doing with you, Israel, the Lord is saying. I'm going to work it out. Just give it some time. Look, look how we look at this end of this, of this book of Amos, this prophecy. It says there's going to be a time, the time will come when this will happen. It's almost like us living on earth and we, we speak about the, the times that we're living in, right? But then we, we go to like the book of Revelation and we, take up, we, we, we speak about our uh, eternal kingdom and we're like, the time will come when we will walk down streets of gold. When there will be a water that flows from the throne of God. When there will be trees that are planted and the fruit that grow from those trees, nations would grab from those fruit and they would bring healing to the nations. You've ever read those scriptures? And we will say a time will come. And that's kind of what's happening here. In the Old Testament, the Lord says a time's going to come. And the grape's going to grow and the grain is going to grow fast. And people are going to have to work the fields and work the vineyards because it's going to be a lot. But it's going to be good because from the hills and from the mountains, wine is going to drip. And not just any kind of wine. The Lord says sweet wine. If you study the region and if you study this, you'll see that normally these grapevines, they don't, they don't grow well on hills or on, on mountains. So you're like, why would God allow grapes and vineyards to grow on hills and mountains? And here's the answer. Because in the days of Israel's restoration... Even the mountains, even the hills will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with this wine. Because the Lord will cause things to happen from the, from the world standards that don't make sense. Isn't that the way he works in our lives? When God releases his blessing and restoration, we see here in Amos chapter 9 that fruit is coming, and it's coming with great quality. It's good. It's good stuff. It's, it's dripping with sweet wine when, when God is releasing his restoration, when, when God is doing his work of blessing. The, the work itself is blessed. You heard what I just said? The work it's, itself is blessed. The work itself is blessed, but it's still work. Teachers, you are so blessed. The work is blessed. But teachers, it's still work. For every single one of us that put our hand to the labor, whatever it is that we do, thank you, Lord, for giving me this opportunity to make money on it. It's blessed, but it's still work, isn't it? We still have to be obedient. We still have to be faithful and true. We still have to labor. We can't just sit back and, and not do anything and just... Think, oh, uh, riches will come. No, you got to put something. That mentality that people in our country have, that they think that things could just fall on them and they don't have to work for it. Not us, not the children of God. We work the field and we show testimony that our hands work. And we're faithful to our jobs and we're faithful to our, our, those that we work under. And we show them that we're hard workers and we show them that that's what Jesus does. 
And, 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 and there's work still that has to be done. And there's work in Amos chapter 9 for the people of Israel. They still have to plow. They still have to reap. They still have to tread grapes. And they still have to sow seed. It's not just going to be like, oh, God promised a blessing. That means I don't have to do anything anymore. No. If God is blessing, it should move you to even put more work into it. And that's what he's calling in Amos chapter 9. A time will come. But when it comes, there's still work to do. You know where I'm going with this, right? I started in the Old Testament. We're speaking about the word harvest. Because when a harvest comes, it's amen. When people get saved, it's amen. When someone gets delivered from all kinds of things that have, had, have them bound and they've been struggling and you see that there's freedom and there's healing, Amen. But all of that brings work. All of that causes something out of you to put something into it. And let, well, let's keep reading. Let's see what happens here. It's a harvest. It's, hey, it's there, but who's going to pick it up? We'll get there. We just stopped in verse 13. Let's keep reading verse 14 and 15 just so I could get to the New Testament for a moment. He says this, I will bring, remember the Assyrians took them over. And he says, I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands. And they will rebuild the ruined cities, and they will live in them again, and they will plant vineyards and gardens. You, you guys, this is beautiful. And they will eat their crops and drink their wine, and I will firmly plant them there in their own land, and they will never again be uprooted. Another translation says, they will never be pulled up from their land. From the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Verse 13, 14, and 15, what a beautiful end to the first nine chapters of, hey, this is what the Lord's going to do. But he's got promises for us. What I want us to see in today's message, I haven't given you the title yet for a reason, is I want you to see a picture of a harvest here. I want you to get in your mind and in your heart Get it quickly, not slowly, but get it now. Get it quickly, the word harvest and what that looks like for you. There was a difficult time in their lives. But then would come a true harvest, a great harvest for the people of Israel. He says things like, I'm going to plant them in their land. I'm never going to uproot them again. I'm never going to pull them out of their land. I've warned them so much. The prophet Amos has spoken so much into them about their captivity, about their exile eventually. But then God comes at the end and he tells them, look forward to the day when I'm going to bring you back to your land and you'll never be removed again. Do you know that Israel today is in their land and there have been nations, there have been kings, there have been rulers that have tried to uproot Israel from their land and every single one has failed because God has said it and they are not more powerful than God's word. Hitler caused the greatest catastrophic thing that he could do on this earth by killing all these Jews and all these people and by the millions and yet he couldn't succeed. 
everyone has tried and, and, and you can't because the Lord has spoken it. I want you to see how powerful when God's word is when he speaks a blessing. So as I, as I read through Amos and now I get through the rest of my message, I understand that, that this also shows us that the Lord is promising Israel that there is a blessing, blessing and a provision and it's a, also a restoration for future generations. I love that God speaks to you, but as he speaks to you, he speaks through you. He doesn't just speak to you. God is in the business. You see it all over scripture that as he speaks to you, he begins to speak to like your children's children's children. And it's something that God does with his people. It's like when he grabs them. Ah, man, just trying to, Abraham. This is a great example. Why not start there? And here's Abraham. And he's like, oh, from you and from your children, mighty nations are going to come out. And he's like, I'm 100 years old. Not one child yet. And the Lord does this work in us where when he gives us a word, he's like, this is not just for you. Because what you do with it today, it's, it's, it's going to be impact and it's going to be fruitful, not just for you. You might not even see it. It might be for the generations that come from you. And he's doing that in Amos chapter 9. Speak to the people of Israel such a word. And when you really listen to it, it's for generations to come. It's for generations. So what, what do we do? What do we do today? What do we do in this moment? Because even if it's not a time of remarkable blessing or restoration as we read in Amos chapter 9, we still know that the work of God still deserves our energy. The work of God still deserves our effort. I, I want to, maybe Spurgeon can say it better than I can. Look at these words from the prince of preachers, as he was known as, named Charles Spurgeon. He says these words. The duty of the church is not to be measured by her success. It is as much the minister's duty to preach the gospel in unfortunate times as in favorable seasons. We are not to think if God withholds the due that we are to withhold the plow. We are not to imagine that if unfruitful seasons come, we are therefore to cease from sowing our seed. Our business is with action, not with result. The church has to do her duty, even though that duty should bring her no present reward. These are great words from Charles Spurgeon. Don't think that it's just you're putting your hand to the plow and you're working and even if you don't see fruitful seasons coming, that you have to stop sowing the seed. And our business as the church is take action. Put in the work. Even if you don't see the result, you do what you have to do. That's your duty. It's a great message. It's a great truth to the church. Let's go back to Amos. Though Amos and his prophecies towards Israel happened some seven. 150 years before Christ is born, and we see him in the New Testament. 
Not that he wasn't there in the Old Testament, but we see his birth in the New Testament. We can still see some truths in Amos chapter 9 and the whole book, really. We could still see some applications that can be taken in on our part. The Lord is good. There's great blessings and promises that come from him. We see that. But just like Israel, we as a church trusting in his faithfulness are to keep our hands at work knowing that our reward is kept and given in Christ Jesus our Lord. It reminds me of Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, when a few individuals were giving excuses of things to do before deciding to let go of it all and follow Jesus. Jesus would look at, there's three examples. He says, come and follow me, come and follow me, come and follow me. And each one of these men had an excuse. Whoa, my dad died, I got to bury him. Oh, let me go back home and say bye to everyone. Oh, making excuses. And Jesus says to these individuals that are making excuses to follow him and to put their hand to the plow, Jesus looks at them and says, listen to these words, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus' very own words. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. The message translation, it says, no, no, Jesus says, no procrastination, no backward looks. You can't put God's kingdom off till tomorrow. And then he says, seize the day. Seize the day. All right, I'm going to finally get into my message today. Today's message is titled, you're in season. This is just a second part. But today's message is titled, Seize the Day. Seize your day. And I love what Jesus says, you can't put your hand to God's work. What you trust in the Lord in and still look back, the kingdom of heaven will not manifest for that individual. I love how Eugene puts it, you can't look backwards You can't put God's kingdom off tomorrow. It's right now. It's right here. It's for this moment. Take it by force. I want to share from my heart today, and I'm going to ask you some questions in a little bit, but I believe that we don't have to wait for the harvest. Listen to me, every single one of you, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, listen to these words. I don't believe you have to wait for the harvest. Please listen to this. I believe, you should write this in your notes, I believe the harvest is here. Shake the person next to you and say, the harvest is here. I think we need to wake some people up. The harvest is here. The harvest is here. Let me explain to you what this looks like. Because when you say something like this, the harvest is here. You don't have to wait for it. I get what the reply is. The reply is this, then where is it? The reply is, well, where can I see it? Where's the harvest? I want you to think of a field, and I wish I could open the, if I open up these walls and I say, look outside, there's a field outside, there's a harvest, and you look out there, and you you say, well, I see is a field. No, no, look closely, and then you start to see white. You see that the grain is flourishing. You see that fruit 
is coming out from the ground. I believe that we don't have to wait in a dry field looking to see if God's doing something. I believe the harvest is here. Well, where is it? Where can I see it? Here's my answer to questions like that. Maybe it's there. It's there for the reaping. But maybe it's just that we're short reapers. Maybe that's the problem with the harvest. I've heard so many people preach and pray for the harvest of God without praying for the reapers to be sent out. Maybe I should read a scripture to you so you can understand what I mean. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is with his disciples. And he's speaking to them and he's teaching them. And we'll get into the full context of this. But he says such words to them in verse 37 and 38. He says to his disciples, he says, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Did you catch that? But he doesn't stop there. In verse 38, he says, so pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the field. Hey, when I asked you guys, there's a harvest, and you maybe could have been one of those individuals that said, well, where is it? How can I see it? Maybe it starts with looking at us. Is God calling you to take action? As he did to the children of Israel in Amos, it's going to take action from you. As Jesus does here with the disciples, hey, there's a harvest, but pray to the Lord of it to send more workers into the fields. I want to ask you this question, and I want you to answer it, because we're going to challenge you on this, and I challenge myself on this as well. Please listen to this. Have you ever prayed or maybe desired for this? Have you prayed this before? Be honest now. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to me. Don't lie to before the presence of the Lord. Have you ever prayed this? Lord, move my heart for what moves yours. Already, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Can you answer that right now, truthfully? Let's have church now. Let's have that conversation. Can you answer that truthfully within your heart and your spirit? Have you ever said, Lord, I'm guilty of that? I'm guilty of saying, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Lord, move my heart for what moves yours. I've desired that. I've said it publicly out loud and I said it quietly in my prayers. Keep that question in your heart. Keep that question in your mind. And as you're answering that question, I want to look at the full story of Jesus' statements that I gave you. I want you to look at the context of it, of what just happened and why Jesus just said that in verse 37 and 38 about the harvest. In verse 35 of Matthew 9, Jesus is traveling through all the different towns. Jesus is traveling to all the different villages. And he's doing a few things. Look what he's doing. He is teaching in the synagogues. Everyone say teaching. That's what Jesus is doing. If Jesus was here today, he would be up here as one of the teachers. He was teaching in the synagogues. And he was announcing. Another way of wording this is he was preaching. He was teaching and preaching. And you can say, well, what's the difference? Well, there's a difference. 
He was a great teacher and he was also an amazing preacher. And he was announcing the good news. Another translation says he was preaching the gospel. The good news, the gospel about the kingdom. He was teaching and he was preaching. He wasn't only teaching and preaching, it says, and he healed. And he's also healing. How many of you would say Jesus was putting in some work? Bro, I, I, I read the Bible and sometimes I'm like, oh, God, thank you for convicting me. Because here's Jesus and he's like, I put in work, Regal. I was preaching in synagogues. I was, teaching in, I, was, I was teaching in synagogues, preaching the kingdom, and I was healing all kinds of sick and casting all kinds of demons. I was, I was working. I was working when I was walking on earth. I was planting seeds. I was watering the field. I was doing it. My cousin John the Baptist was doing it. He got beheaded for it. I got crucified for it. Then after me came the disciples. You know them. Those rugged boys that I raised up. And I grew them, and I taught them, and every single one of them, one of them got speared, one of them got hung upside down, the other one got burned with oil and left to die in an island, but I gave them revelation over there in that mountain, and, and, and the other one got snapped in half, and the, all those boys had to pay a price, all my boys did, but, but, but man, did they plant the seed, man, did they water the field, man, Regal, they put in work. Matthew put in work, and even Luke put in work, and, and Paul later on comes in and puts in work, and Barnabas puts in work. My disciples and the apostles, they all put in work. The early church, oh man, they lost some brothers and sisters. Nero grabbed some of them one time over dinner and put them up on the stake and burned them with oil, and then he had these weird orgies and weird parties while Christians were burning at the stake. They planted seeds as Nero was having parties to get his men drunk and fat with his stake. They were planting seeds. Oh, Regal, the church, the early church, they planted seeds. They put in work. I put work. My boys put work. The church put work. And it's almost as he's looking at us and says, put the work in. The harvest is ready. The seeds have been planted. The water has fallen. Work is what he's telling the church. We can't read the scripture and ignore the sacrifices that our brothers and sisters have made for the truth of the gospel. For their love for their Messiah. For their heart for the kingdom. And not say, am I willing to put in the same work? I want you to think about that for a moment. Let's keep reading. He was teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. He healed every kind of disease and illness. I love that it says every kind. You want to know why every kind? Because there were too many. It says that if you were to write down all of Christ's miracles, all the books in the world would not be able to contain them all. Like, that's mind-blowing. That means... There's so much that Jesus did that weren't even, it wasn't even written. We're going to hear about them. We're going to hear those stories when we get to eternity, church. We're going to sit at his feet, and he's going to say, do you want to know what I did? You want to know what else I said? We know about Lazarus come forth, and we know about Peter walking on water. And, but what other stories do we not know? 
He healed all kinds of diseases and illnesses. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds, you know what that means, right? The people, the multitudes of people. It says he had compassion on them because they were confused. They were helpless. And look what they were like. Look what Jesus, look look, look how he sees them. He sees them like sheep. Sheep without a shepherd. There's crowds of people and there's no one leading them. So now we get to verse 37 and 38. Remember verse 37 and 38? All of this is happening. The crowds are there. Jesus sees them like sheep with no shepherd. And all of this to say these two verses. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. When he's saying that, there's a crowd of people. And then he says, and pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. And as they're looking, they look at the field, and it's a bunch of people that are like sheep with no shepherd. Man. What was he telling the disciples? What are we hearing from the Lord today? I hope you're hearing this. Seize the day. So Jesus is teaching, is preaching, is healing And then he sees multitudes, and he's moved with compassion, and he is not taking a break in this moment. They were walking around aimlessly, we could say, and no one was leading them. He knew there weren't enough leaders and workers, laborers out in the field, those that would go to them. Please listen to this. Well, what does laborers, what do workers in the field look like? Individuals that will go to them and get dirty? Individuals that would give up their own time to give their time to someone else. Individuals that will spend time leading someone else. He says, there's a lot in the field, but we don't have enough people that are willing to give up their lives for them. Will you seize this day? I don't want to go too quick and you miss the heart of this. But I want you to notice that when Jesus sees the crowd, he has compassion for them. Because they're sheep that are actually lost. And Jesus doesn't like anyone lost. How many of you have prayed, Lord, move my heart for what moves yours? Can we go back to that question? Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Well, guess what breaks the Lord's heart? Guess what moves the Lord's heart? There's a multitude of lost sheep. And they don't have a shepherd to lead them. And the Bible says he's moved with compassion. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you are in this room. And starting with me, that you begin to convict my heart because of this verse. That you, Jesus, see a crowd of people and you are moved with compassion. Amen. That phrase, moved in compassion, is a very strong phrase, church. It means to have your bowels yearn. 
Has something ever hurt you so much that it doesn't just hurt you here? It doesn't just hurt you here. Has something moved you so much that your insides, deep inside your gut, it yearns? When Jesus sees the crowd, his bowels are yearning. His insides are broken. Because he sees a crowd and he knows that they're lost. And he says, who's going to go and give them hope and show them that they can be found? And it says that he's moved with compassion. That's a powerful phrase. He's, we look at him and say, oh, he just loved them so much at that moment. No, it wasn't, just, it wasn't like we say, hey, I love you. But yet when something happens to my brother, my insides don't break. But yet I say I love you. Jesus was like, no, everything in me yearns because of what I'm seeing today. I want to ask that question, Lord, move my heart and break my heart for what moves and breaks yours. The depth of feeling that Jesus had for the multitudes cut him from the inside. It says he had compassion. Go do a word study on it. Go do a phrase study on that. And you'll see that it's, a, it's so deep, the meaning of this phrase, that it moved him to feel sympathy and pity for this crowd. And I asked the question to myself today, Regal, have you cried, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours? And the Lord is looking at me and he says, you want to know what moves my heart? You want to see what breaks my heart? Look out to the field because there's a bunch of sheep without a shepherd. There's a field that is ready for the harvest but I don't have enough workers to reap the harvest. And that is breaking me from the inside that my church is comfortable in the AC in their four walls, but they're not getting uncomfortable in the field where the addict is. Oh, man, and where the lost is and where the hurt is. It's time, church, to be these individuals. I think of the Song of Solomon. I won't get into all of that, obviously, right now. It's not that preaching. But I think of chapter 5, verse 4. The bride is covered in oils. She's waiting for her beloved groom to walk into the room. And she's all prepared for that night with her beloved. And she's there, and it says in chapter 5, verse 4, it says, My beloved put his hand on to the latch. And look what... The bride says, and my heart was thrilled within me. My heart was thrilled. I thought about that scripture and I said, our hearts, my heart, is it thrilled within me because our beloved is near. He's near. Lord, what is it, my beloved, that you want me to do? I'm going to close up in about five minutes. But I want you to see this as I wrap this up. Because I believe that God wants to use us in ways that we can't even imagine. What do you do? What's your field that God's called you to? What do you work at? Some of you own your own business. Some of you work alongside someone that they curse and they curse and they curse. 
someone, you work next to a classroom of another teacher maybe who's going through a great hurt. Some of you have a child that walks in and you could see weariness in their eyes and their face. They're not sleeping enough. That's your field. And when you tap into that, you start to recognize their home is destroyed and their child is not sleeping well. I want you to think about your field right now as we get ready to wrap this up and close. I want you to think about your field. And I want you to think about the question in your field. Teachers, listen to me. Every adult in this room, listen to me in whatever it is that you do. Are you ready to go with what God has called you with to go into the field and say, Lord, move my heart, break my heart for what breaks yours. And I know that there's lost people that I work with. I know that there's lost people that are in my classroom. I know that there's lost people that drop off their kids every day. I know that there's lost people that I have to go and serve them at their house. I know that there's lost people in the trade that I have to do. Lord, use me. Use me to be your worker in the field. I know that the harvest is ready. Help me, Lord, to seize the day and to be one of the laborers. Though we're few, here I am, Lord. Let me be a laborer in the field. Let me be a worker in the field. Thank you guys for coming here every Sunday. Thank you guys for planning your schedule to come back next Sunday. Thank you guys for thinking about bringing your youth now as we start Nest Youth. Thank you for coming to our men's. Thank you for coming to our women's. Thank you for joining us at our 5.30 prayer on Fridays if you do. Thank you for being part of the family and all these beautiful moments that we can do together. But don't think that that is all that God has for our church and that is all that God has for you. It's more than just a Wednesday group and a Sunday two-hour gathering. It's Lord, take me to the field with what I just heard from pastor's lips on Sunday and from your heart on Sunday. Take me to the field so that I could be one of your workers. I want to reap the harvest for the kingdom of heaven. I want to look at the masses. I want to look at the crowds. And I want to be broken because I look at them and I see them as sheep with no shepherd. I want to show them who the shepherd is. I want to lead them to the shepherd. Come and follow me and see that he is good. Take me to the field, Lord, for the harvest is plenty. Lord, I thank you for, for doing it. Lord, I thank you for bringing the John the Baptist. I thank you for bringing the disciples and the apostles. And I thank you for those in the early church that risked it all to plant seeds and water. But come on, what, what will the books about us say? What will the letters written of us say? Will we be the reapers of this land that reaps the harvest from the ones who have planted and watered so Jesus finishes talking to the Samaritan woman last week and he says you keep coming here and you keep drawing water go call your husband and she says I don't have a husband he goes you're right neither were the last five you were with 
It says that she goes back to the Samaritan village where she's from, and she tells everyone everything that Jesus has told her and everything that she has done. You know what that means? Everything wasn't written down in Scripture. But that means that Jesus sat with her and told her detail about every one of her last relationships probably. She was so on fire in her heart that the jug of water that she went to draw water from to take back to her family, it says that she left it at the well and she runs back and she tells all the prominent men, all the leaders of the town, you need to come and meet this Jesus that has told me everything that I've ever done. While all that commotion is happening, the Bible's so rich, man. I love it. The disciples come back and they're smiling. <laughs> Jesus is so funny, man. Like, he's so comical in his goodness, you know? Because you could almost see Peter gets in the front, right? I- I'm not saying that this is how it happened. I'm just like, and he's like, everyone get behind me. I want him to see me. And he, and he has like fish. And he's got bread. And he's got all kinds of like maybe figs and dates and all that to give to Jesus, right? And, and then, you know, James and John kind of pushed away because they want to be great in the kingdom. And Peter's like, get behind me, boys. And, and Andrew's there and Philip's there and, and everyone's there. And they're like, master, teacher, rabbi, we brought food. They worked so hard to bring their master, their teacher, their rabbi food. Look what we did for you. We love you so much that we thought of you and we brought you food. And then he looks at them and says, "Ah, thank you for walking all those miles. Thank you for spending money. Thank you for thinking of me. But I don't need to eat that food. The food that I eat is a different kind of food. And they look, they have food in their hands, and they're like, what in the world is he saying? Isn't he comical? How he deals with our hearts? Disciples, you're so caught up in physical things. Disciples, you're so caught up in physical things that many times you miss the spiritual reality in front of you. But Lord, you need to eat. And he's like, you still don't get it. So let's put the verse up. Look what he says to them. This was last week. Remember this? He says this. Keep going. You need to eat. Nah, I got other kinds of food you don't know about. My food is to do the will of God, the will of the Father, to accomplish his work. Can you, what a great conversation. I wish I was there. Just keep going. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. I tell you to lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. That's that. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. And I sent you, he's talking to the disciples, this is a great, great comical teaching here, but yet it's so true. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor now. Others have labored and you have entered now into their labor. There's a beautiful situation going on here. They bring him food and he says, your food is in the field. 
all those souls, bring them into the banquet. Bring them into the house of God. And in that field, there's probably, at this time in John chapter 4, a multitude of Samaritans. And Jesus doesn't want them to think the disciples of terms of seasons and months but that they would see that the harvest is right now. It's not for a specific time. It's now. He's speaking to them about what the Jews would consider their enemies, showing them what their ministry would look like. And he's showing them that salvation now was not just to stay at home comfortable and hoarded amongst the Jewish people, but he's teaching his disciples that salvation is for your enemies as well, for the ones that you've looked down upon all these years. It's also for them, and you will preach it to the ends of the earth. And how is the field? He says it's white, and it's white for harvest. The grain is fully ripe. The harvest, it's overripe actually, and it's ready now. Disciples, will you seize the day, he tells them. Take it. It's yours. Reap what those have labored. So I end with this, and I thought of this last verse. It's in Proverbs chapter 14. You've ever read this verse? Let's put it up. It says this, without oxen, a stable stays clean. Isn't that true? I have a dog. I don't have an ox. And I don't have a stable for my dog. I have a yard for my dog. And it's just one 65-pound dog. Darren got to see him yesterday and visited him. Rudy got to visit him yesterday. But a couple of us, a couple of the boys, and then Jackson later on entered the house with it too, stepped on my dog's poop and got it on the basketball court. And Jackson, mom doesn't know yet, brought it into the house and into the rug of where we sit down in the living room. Oh no, there's... There's poop. But where there's no oxen, it stays clean. Where there's no dog, the yard stays clean. But when you have oxen, it comes with stuff. It comes with problems. Sometimes it comes with poop. We're humans, we're people. Sometimes we bring our poop to the stable, don't we? But there's truth about oxen. I don't know about you, but I get it. Maybe Christians want a clean stable. But that's not what God's called us for. God hasn't called us to occupy clean stables. He's called us to be in the business of working in dirty stables because there's a lot of oxen there. Look at the next verse. It says, but you need a strong ox. You need to put ox in your stable. You need to get dirty. It's going to come. It's going to happen. There's going to be problems. Things are going to arise. It's not going to always be perfect. But there has to be ox in the stable, and it's going to come with its problems. But you need these ox, and you need a strong ox if you need any kind of ox. Get an ox that's going to work the field. And look what he says about the ox. Get them. The ox are important. Why are they important? Because there's a large harvest, and they work the fields. So if you ask me today, if you could be any animal today, what do you want to be? I want to be a strong ox, baby. I want to work the field, and I want it to be a strong harvest. And I want to be a strong ox. And I don't want to just sit back in a clean stable. Lord, bring the ox. Get the stable dirty. We'll work it. And let the ox get strong. And let them continue to go out to the field. And let them continue to work for the large harvest.
Come on, church, seize the day. Would you stand with me? Let's seize the day. It is such a time. I want you to, if you can, if you feel so right there where you're at, can you just close your eyes there and meditate there in your heart? How's the harvest? Seriously, how's the harvest? It's white. And it's ready. And I'm telling you that you're in season. The Lord looks at the disciples and says, it's time. I want to share this with you one last time before we close up. Lord, every single one of us in this room, if we desire for our hearts to be moved for what moves yours and to be broken for what breaks yours, I pray, Lord God, that you would do that miracle right now deep within us. I pray that we would be so burdened for the, for the crowds that are like sheep without a shepherd. That we would be so burdened for those that are lost. I pray, Lord God, that we would be the reapers of this age that would reap the great field, the great harvest of this age. Lord, send us Lord, use us. For the time is now. Let us seize the day. Let us take it by force. Let us be your workers and your laborers on this mission field called earth. And let us, our hearts, be for the people that do not know you to bring them to the feet of Jesus. Make us like Andrew. Lord, do a miracle. Prepare us because the harvest is ready. Lord, I love you. And I thank you for speaking such a truthful word to my heart today. That there is a field and there is a work still to be done. You're good. You've brought provision. Like Amos, you've brought grapes. Everything is well, but there's still work to do. Whether we see the sweet wine dripping from the hilltops or whether we are in a moment of desert, of dryness, I pray, Lord God, that we would still put in the work, that we would still be faithful and true to you, Lord God, and be living, Lord God, in your obedience so that, Lord, we could reap the great harvest that's before us in season and out of season. We thank you, Lord. Here we are. Send us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And together we say, Amen and Amen. Thank you, Lord. Church, as you leave today, there's food outside. Donate to our kids if you can. But also as you leave today, take this word. Take that question about your heart. Take that deep yearning to consideration and be used in the great field that God has called you to, you, to use you in. Amen? God bless. You are loved. Have an awesome rest of this Sunday.